What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the State of America podcast. As most of you know, if you follow uh, Steve Gorman on Twitter, know that recently his brother Jim died. And he died of a disease called MSA, multiple system atrophy. That's a bad time. I know that, um, you know, Steve really loves his brothers. And if you listen to, like, any of his podcasts or interviews or even in his book and on his radio shows, he's really close with all his brothers. I think if you're listening to this podcast, Steve Gorman has impacted your life in a positive way, whether it's, uh, you know, having fun listening to the Black Crows or, you know, if you need the Black Crows to for a pick-me-up. And so his brother Jim that died was very passionate uh, about research for MSA. And so what we thought we could do is uh, if you go to multiplesystematrophy.org, there's a donate button. Click on the donate button and then select research fund. And it asks you on there also, would you like to do this in memory of somebody? Let's do that in the memory of Jim Gorman and donate to that. I did it the other day. It's very simple. It took me five minutes. Let's be there for Steve during, during this tough time for him. And hopefully uh, we can help out with our research. So go to multiplesystematrophy.org. Click on the donate button. Drop down in memory of Jim Gorman. We know you guys are going to help us out there and help Steve out. And um, he's just, Steve's done a lot for all of us, and it's time for us to help him. Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast, State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice. And with me, as always, is my good buddy, David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Oh, Ian, it's just another podcast, another day. <laughs> I can't even, <laughs> I can't even remotely, uh, remotely say that. No, it's, it's, been a, it's been a very special day. Yes, and uh, we are... Recording this uh, right on the heels of interviewing our guest for this week, uh, Mr. Mark Ford, who needs no introduction other than his name. He is well-known with the likes of the Black Crows community and well-loved within the Black Crows community. And we had a really good time chatting with him. Isn't that right? Yeah, and and I want to thank his manager, Owen, for setting this up. And we want to thank Mark for doing it. Mark was very gracious, gave us an hour we just finished the interview. Uh, the adrenaline's flowing pretty good for both of us. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you folks can be the judge of this, but I don't think we had one single Chris Farley moment. So I think uh, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I think everything's all good. And uh, but before we get into that, we do want to uh, talk a couple of minutes about some other Black Crows-related news that came out very recently. Uh, the band has opted to release on February 26th a super deluxe version of their first album shake your moneymaker and it looks like it's going to be pretty cool i don't know what do you think david yeah i actually i ordered two copies i ordered the deluxe version and i ordered the uh, limited edition one i think it has like a signed photo in it is that right like a thousand were made or something like that yeah i believe it's a signed photo of chris um the first thing that sticks out to me was the price you and i are big on buying like reissues and i thought the price point was very very good considering what you get i mean look at how much the wildflowers and now obviously the wildflowers deluxe deluxe set or whatever had like you know a lot of a lot more albums on it but like i got the deluxe one and it was i guess the first deluxe one it's not the the super deluxe one you know and it wasn't cheap and and, i mean some of these bands really gouge you on some of these things um i think the crows 
did, had a very good price point. Obviously, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you know they released Charming Mess, which I mean, it's been that's been floating around for. I've had that for forever. Uh, it's just a great rock song. I think it kind of encapsulates where they were at the time, and I think Chris is even nudge nudge smile smile made some mention about it sounding like uh hot legs you know? he did yeah but he, in that rolling stone piece he did say that uh, uh rod himself had kind of given the okay for them to put that out so you know that's cool i mean i guess you know 30 years down the line what does it matter anymore as long as you're admitting to the fact that yeah this does kind of sound like that in the beginning there you know no it's a it's a fun song i mean I, you could take strut and blues off money maker and put that on there and i'd be perfectly happy with it yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to uh, gently remind some some of the uh, more diehard folks that yes, I mean, a great number of us have had that track uh, for some time, but uh, that is still new to a lot of uh, more casual people. So it is really cool that they put out something kind of obscure like that. And I think we get a um, we get a live show, and then there's uh, some unreal and some more unreleased songs and B sides. I'm looking forward to it, but more importantly. And I think we all need to to take this into account. This is a good sign and a good step. I mean, uh, in my opinion, if uh, you know this thing sells well, that really opens the door for subsequent albums to get the same treatment. And who wouldn't like a nice uh, Southern Harmony or Amorica or Three Snakes uh, deluxe edition? Because I certainly would. Well, and I'll just say this: you know, we've been big advocates of of them releasing archival material and and you know and releasing some some unreleased stuff. So I think it's important that a we support them for doing that. And so uh, if you you know I know times are tough for a lot of people out there right now, but it, you know if you uh, feel so inclined, go get it because I think the success of it's only going to lead to to more stuff coming out. And I mean, we all want some of those '96 shows released on vinyl. Uh, if they would do a Southern Harmony reissue and and release you know one of those highs the moon shows, I mean, come on. We all want that, and and I, I've listened to "Shake Your Money Maker" more in the past year than I have in a long time, and it's just it's a great fun record. You know, I, I think people try to compare it to the next three, and the next three are their own beast. You know, when they became who they are, but uh, I, I'm I'm excited for this, and I, I think it's um it's something that I'm looking forward to getting, and and hopefully this leads to much many more releases, and hopefully at some point some new music. Come on, guys, you've been cooped up for a year. Yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, they do keep very, uh, very, very tight-lipped, as we all know. So, you know, it could be something coming down the pipeline uh, sooner rather than later. But we'll just have to wait and see. But this is definitely a, a good step in the right direction. Which version did you get? I got. I actually ordered the deluxe vinyl and the and the CD as well because uh, I'm like that. You know, I still listen to CDs too. So, you know. where do you stand on colored vinyl? Colored vinyl to me is okay because I did a little uh, reading about it and it doesn't really affect the sound at all. I think traditionally uh, vinyl is not black to start with, so that's technically colored vinyl. That's what I've right heard. Yeah, the only thing I, I, I don't like and I have heard a declining quality is a picture disc. A lot of th- Those have a lot of surface noise because of the nature of the fact that there's a picture pressed onto the – Onto the vinyl, you know. So that's I don't really buy too many of those. Didn't Megadeth like their euthanasia? Didn't they put that as like a picture disc? I believe so. Yeah. Tell me if you think this is weird or not. I don't really listen to any heavy metal vinyl. Yeah, you've mentioned that before, and um, it's not uh, not weird, I guess, because a vinyl really you listen to it because you're looking to hear more of the subtleties of the music, and uh, you know the majority of metal isn't you know wholly subtle. So right. 
it's not really if if that's what you're into vinyl for, there's not really a need for it, you know. But there are some metal records that uh, I'm sure do, you know, get a, a new breath of life into them from vinyl. Well, when I went uh, got to interview Dave Ellison from Megadeth from other podcasts, I bought uh, Rust in Peace on vinyl, so you know I could get him to sign that. And it just I don't know it, to me it just doesn't. Maybe my setup's not as good. I told you to stop. Uh, listening to things on that my first sony that you just won't let go of. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> hey i converted you to be a orbit u-turn guy you did and in turn have i think have converted my father who was looking to purchase a new turntable and i was singing its praises so i think he's uh, gonna get one too so uh i think they owe you a little kickback david yeah. you know you, you got some other sales out of it you know when i upgraded to that blue cartridge and uh there's i had the red cartridge and uh, upgraded to the blue and uh it's uh, definitely uh, a little more clarity on some things. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't deny. I mean, sometimes you know, because like with any facet of collecting or or listening or things, there's there's people that go way far into it. And uh, but I mean, there really is something to be said for vinyl. There's a lot of things I've listened to on vinyl and picked up on nuances or elements that you just don't hear on the CD or any other format because of the way it's uh, mastered or compressed or whatever. So I mean, you know, it's a there's a strong case for the sound of vinyl that I think is very valid. Well, you know, a lot of people thought when it came back it was just going to be a fad, but it's like steadily. Gro- I don't think it's a fad anymore. I mean, it's steadily growing. There still is like a, a fad quality to it. Like you know, Best Buy still sells like you know Crossley turntables and sells LPs, and that's those. I think people that would buy them from that that kind of venue are more casual and kind of just maybe doing it because. Uh, you know, it's the thing to do right now. But uh, you know, online is like an, a, a, a treasure trove of vinyl things, whether it be equipment or albums themselves. I mean, it's really quite a. You know, it can really uh, empty your bank account quick. <laughs> it can. It, it did mine for sure, especially when we were on like you know strict lockdown. I was like every day, like the UPS guy was dropping off some some vinyl. Did you get any vinyl at Christmas? I did, you know, people kind of uh, hesitate to uh, purchase vinyl for me because I, uh, I a lot of times I've already bought it or they're not quite sure what I have and what I don't. So um, I usually get kind of uh, gift cards or something and then I'll go out and, and pick up some stuff. But uh, yeah, I got a few uh, bits and pieces. You got a uh, some egghead sent you a nice uh, painting, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I'd love to know who that was because it was really a nice <laughs> gesture. No. Uh, yes, David was kind enough to... Uh, and I'm sorry for my rudeness, David. I should have mentioned that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm on a Mark Ford high still, so I, uh, I'm a little cloudy. But yeah, so uh, still one of a kind. Uh, David had a custom piece painted uh, for him um, that had our logo worked into it. And, uh, you know, I admired it. So for Christmas, David got me the artist to uh, do one for me that's, you know, slightly different. So there you are, uh, still unique. But it's great. I just took it to be uh, professionally framed and all that. So it should be up on the wall in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Michael Lewis is the, uh, artist that did it. And, uh, we're going to have him on in the future. The, the attention to detail on it was just stunning. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I'd been, I'd been sitting on that one, that idea for a little bit and was, uh, was excited to get it to you. I was excited to get it. I mean, beautiful watercolor, uh, piece. And, uh, I can't wait to put it. I was, I've stupidly, I was in such a hurry to get it framed. So it was protected. I didn't snap a shot of it first, so when it comes back from the uh, from being framed, I'll definitely take a pic, and we'll put yours and mine up for uh, others to admire. But uh, so, uh, be, you know, before we wrap things up here and get 
uh, into the Mark Ford interview, which is, uh, I'm sure, why mostly everybody's here right now. Uh, they're, they're screaming at their uh, at their speaker right now. Shut up! But uh, <laughs> uh, I just want to say that uh, the exclusive uh, live in Germany streaming event and after party are uh, tonight, January fourteenth at eight p.m. Eastern time, and you can still get your tickets now at noonchorus.com/slash/mark-ford. So you can either just uh, sign up for the streaming event itself, or you can also get the streaming event and the after party. So uh, we would appreciate anybody that can turn out uh, big time, show Mark Ford some love, let him know that the uh, State of America fan base does appreciate him. And also the Live in Germany album itself will be available for download via Bandcamp on Friday, January 15th. So make sure you get over there and get yourself a copy. We did, for benefit of the interview, we did get it in advance so we could listen to it. It's a great album. Sounds great. Great performance. So you won't be disappointed. And uh, for those who don't know the great thing about Bandcamp, uh, it's not just MP3 downloads. They have a wealth of file types you know including all the lossless types and and the price doesn't change you know any file type is the same price so uh i think it's going for 10 bucks or more because you can do the minimum or you can pay a bit more if you want to give a little bit more back to the artist so uh all right david i say uh without further ado we head on over to mark ford what do you say let's go everyone very big day here at state of america we are very pleased to welcome a very special guest that we've been wanting to speak to for a long time you all know him you all love him we love him uh ladies and gentlemen please welcome mr mark ford to state of america mark how you doing i'm good very good you know before we start talking about uh everything and your new live record how did you spend your 2020 with the pandemic going on must have been a real challenge um yes and no uh, you know, kind of being a musician, there's a, you know, you learn a fine art of sitting still <laughs> because it's mostly what you do. Um, so other than not getting to play, it's kind of business as usual. The good thing, I mean, my favorite thing was this first summer I had home and, in, in, in a few years. And so my daughter and I got out to the beach and she I, she learned to boogie board and I, I started learning to surf and um, and so yeah that was the best the best part of the summer. Well, we uh, we had Susan Tedeschi on here and and she was saying how her and Derek could actually plan to take you know a lot of time off this year, but she kind of said the same thing you know you did the time with family was just invaluable. Yeah, I mean it's uh, you can you can sort of get all fidgety and squirm against what can't change or you can just kind of appreciate the time that, that you got you know it's it's different and you don't know how it may turn out but it doesn't mean it all sucks <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well um mark obviously some people have posted some videos online of uh of you playing uh, at your church and uh I was telling Ian beforehand as I grew up in the church and still attend but man I never went to church and had mark ford in the praise band how, was that kind of a, a good outlet for you during this time well, I mean, you know, mainly it's it's 
it's a chance to get together with my friend and um, my wife and we get to go, yeah, play some music and hang out for a little bit. So, yeah, it helps. It's nice. Well, we've uh, we've listened to some uh, several of the interviews you've done uh, recently, and uh, for your sake, we'll try not to duplicate too many of the questions you've been asked on those. Uh, but we do think it would benefit uh, our audience here if you kind of explain how the uh, Live in Germany record uh, came about. I understand it kind of just dropped into your lap a bit. Yeah, um, my son Elijah sort of just let me know that this guy from the club had sent him the hard drive or or was offering the hard drive, or I don't really remember how it went down, but essentially we just had this sort of um, entire show on multi-track and multi-camera uh, shoot. So I just said, well, you know, let's, let's mix the audio and stick it out as a live record, and not really considering the video much. Because... Uh, well, I just didn't. It just seemed like a bigger project that I don't, I don't want to get involved in, you know, at the time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I had no idea how we would have sounded. I remember the tour being fun, and I remember really enjoying playing with the guys. Um, but I had no idea how we were four or five days into that tour with no rehearsals. You know, so. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I heard a couple of the jams and they were really fun to listen to. So I thought if I was enjoying it, somebody else will enjoy it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've listened to it uh, all the way through several times. It's it's a great recording and a great performance. Uh, the one question I did have to, uh, I wanted to ask, because obviously it's recorded uh, in Germany. Are the audiences slightly different there? Because I noticed that there was a they would wait until you were finished with the song until they applauded like they were very they seemed almost more reserved than american audiences is it is it different playing over in europe it's much different because um they're attentive they're they're not they're just waiting for you to be done so they don't miss anything <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> they're really paying attention and really enjoying you know it's like it's like you come to the end of a of a bitchin' scene in the movie and the guy next to you goes, oh, man, it's like, what? You just ruined the moment, you know what I mean? <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> so I, that's what um, I look forward to going to Europe is um, it's a whole different um, relationship with the audience that you have. Well, one, one thing I've always thought that's interesting about the European audiences, and I'm sure you can <clears throat> elaborate on this, Kind of once they become a fan of you, they're a fan of you, regardless of what else is going on in the world. Have you have you kind of found that to be true? Yeah, because I think that they're they don't have maybe as much of a disposable mentality as we do here. You know, they they have they understand what it means to have something last a while, and people appreciate it through time and be proud of it. And it takes a minute to for something to really blossom and grow. And you, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, here we're just like, yeah, I'll give you 12 seconds and then it's on to the next thing, which sadly it's kind of spreading everywhere. But at least there's, you know, there's history in Europe where we don't have much of, you know. 
We do want to remind everybody that uh, Mark's new album, Live in Germany, uh, is getting an exclusive streaming premiere event on January 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Noon Chorus. You can get your tickets to that as well as an exclusive after party by heading over to noonchorus.com slash mark Ford. And the Live in Germany album comes out uh, this Friday, January 15th via Bandcamp. So uh, make sure you show Mark some love. Head over to bandcamp.com and get your copy. So, Mark, you've kind of always been regarded as one of the best live players of your generation. So, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, you know, that you're releasing the uh, Live in Germany album. But i got to ask you, when you go back and listen to something like that, do you critique yourself? Or have you just, you know, have at this point, have you become fully, you know, confident in your playing? And, you know, there's really no need for that anymore. Well, I would lie to you if I said that I don't <laughs> critique myself. Because, of course, you know, I want to. I mean, it really, the ultimate answer is I my perspective on myself isn't really the best one. So I'll listen to it, and if I'm enjoying, uh, if I'm enjoying listening to it as a whole, I, you know, my focus on me is much less now. I'm I back up and I get the bigger picture, and I'm not that really hung up on me because if I, if that's a miserable way to live, <laughs> <laughs> and I grew up so. If it works as a whole, then I'm happy with it. It sounds like, you know, you, you're you completely comfortable, you know, with your playing. I know we've had people, the reason I ask that, we've had people come on and say, you know, they listen back to every show and they critique every note or whatever. And that's, I was, that's why I was just asking, like, if you still oh, did, did, did that. No. <laughs> no, I never listen to stuff. I mean, I you know, there might have been a time when I did, and and maybe there's sometimes reasons to if you're, going after a particular thing but to me if it felt good it, it then that's really what mattered because things getting things to sound good isn't always the end game because i've heard some of the greatest recordings and they weren't the best recordings you understand what i mean yeah i mean i, I appreciate a sour note every now and then it's i mean it's unique you're not getting it anywhere else you know it's part of your experience exactly um, I did. I did have a quick question for you about the uh, "It's About Time" album, which we're both big fans of. You had a lot of guest guitar players on there. Was that like a deliberate decision, or is that something that just kind of kind of fell in your lap? Because I mean, you know, obviously you're putting out your first solo album, and you know, you have this you know big reputation as a guitar player. I just always found it interesting. You kind of you know allowed so many other guitar players to come on there and, and play. Um, well, it seemed natural to me, you know, because that record at that time. I was really focused on my uh, songwriting because everybody knew I could play guitar. I just spent, you know, a good part of a decade playing guitar and not really getting to write. So that was my main concern. And and I and in that time, I developed all these relationships, you know, with people that were great players and and cool people. So it was much more fun for me to get to have friends play, you know, and, and uh, change change the flavor of things. Well, uh, speaking of friends of yours, we had uh, recently spoken to, with uh, Jimmy Ashurst, and he spoke quite fondly of the uh, camaraderie you and he had during uh, your Burning Tree days and his uh, Broken Homes days. Uh, what were those early days in L.A. like for you? Oh, gosh. Um, the early days. Uh, well, I mean, you know, we it was basically almost from a high school he was he was three years ahead of me and uh i was still in high school when we met and i think he had just graduated and we 
had a house band, you know, a little home garage band that eventually became Burning Tree. And he had split. He was kind of the first one of us out. He got he got in a band with a record contract with Broken Homes. So that's when I got muddy and dropped the singer and Burning Tree was sort of then birthed. And he went on, you know, as uh, Broken Homes. And there wasn't a lot of us doing anything that wasn't heavy metal at the time. So in that sense, it was a pretty close community of people. You know, we'd all met. I met Craig before Jimmy obviously got involved. Craig Ross. I think we were 18 years old when we met. We played together. My band and his band uh, played. That might have been when him and Jimmy met um, at the Music Machine we were each of us were 18 you know and i believe i stole his analog delay that night <laughs> i'm not on purpose but it ended up in the back of my hand <laughs> oh sure it wasn't on purpose no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also uh, just before you had joined the black crows you had actually uh, played uncredited on izzy stradlin's uh, debut solo album the with the juju hounds uh, how did that come to pass and do you remember what tracks you actually contributed to uh, it was just the one. That was a long time ago. Um, you know, it was a scenario where, you know, Burning Tree and Guns N' Roses rehearsed next door to each other. And, you know, again, the scene wasn't that big in L.A. If, if Even though we weren't really technically in the same one, you know, it's a pretty small community. So we all knew each other. And, and Izzy was making his record and wanted, you know, guys to play solos over it. And so... Um, uh, Ron Wood had just done one, and I went in after him, and that wasn't really that exciting for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was a little tough. Yeah, that would seem like it'd be a tough act to follow, Ron Wood, you know? Yeah, it was cool. I did listen to your uh, your appearance on the Appetite for uh, Distortion podcast. Right. Um, there's you know always been this long-running rumor that you were you know maybe or maybe not casually approached by Slash to to actually take Easy Spot. Is that is there is that truth, or is that just kind of part of the myth? No, I got asked to join that band a couple of different times. Once, when it, there was, he was still finishing, Axel was still finishing that record that was taking forever. Right about when I was about to make It's About Time, I got offered to join that band. Um, but the first time, yeah, I had just come back from a sort of like unofficial, official or whatever it was, joining the Black Crows weekend in Atlanta. When I got back home, that Monday morning, Slash had called him and offered, said that, yeah, that, that Izzy was leaving and, you know, did I want the spot? And I said, I, you know, I just joined the Black Crows, you know, and he was very cool. And, you know, I said, oh, that's, that's a good, a good gig for you. Right on. Yeah. So. Well, I did want to ask you about an album and a band you were in after uh, you left the Crows. And that was when you did stuff with Ben Harper. I got to imagine it was kind of a fun challenge because his music is, is pretty eclectic. Well, I met him because I did I had done some gigs with Chris Stills. He had some horde dates that he wanted to do, so he was playing the B stage, and I I believe it was in Ohio that we we played Ohio at the encore, and um, Ben had to come see who, who was playing the guitar because he was walking past, and so he introduced himself and stayed in touch, and I called him to play on "It's About Time," and then. Uh, he called me to, he was 
found himself out a guitar player when they started that Diamonds on the Inside tour. And so we finished that tour, which took a couple of years, and and then did the There Will Be a Light record, which was really great. And uh, you know, a lot of people ask about the difference in the music, and, and to me, I was applying the same knowledge I had on the guitar, just in a different scenario. Um, it wasn't that much to me. It wasn't that much different. The difference was in in the, the force at which I was implementing some of these things. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more subtleties involved, and and um, but I was I didn't really have to learn anything new other than uh, to listen. You know, and um, I gotta admit I was much more used to and still to shoot from the hip and see how it goes. Where Ben's pretty tidy and pretty planned out. And um, so, you know, we adjusted. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you had won an NAACP award um, for your work with on one of uh, Ben's records. Uh, that must have been a, a point of distinction in your career. It's my favorite thing. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the only thing that I still have from any of the memorabilia. Wow. I love that album, you know, both sides of the gun, the 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 double album. How how involved were you in the recording of that? Not at all. I didn't even know I was on it. <laughs> well, it you're credited on it. Yeah, I mean, I no, I mean, I mean, I know now, but it was out, and I and it kept coming up on things that I'd been on, and I said I didn't even know. Yeah, I was on that. You know, things were recorded a lot while we toured, and who knows when it came from. Oh, okay. Well, being that. Uh, our primary subject matter is the the Black Crows. We're just going to shift things to them for a bit, if you don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. We can certainly attest to the fact that there was a great deal of excitement when you came back to the uh, to the Crows in 2005. Um, but we were just curious how that all came together and what that particular uh, run, you know, between 2005 and 2006 was like for you. It was a lot, like everything else involving that band. Right. You know, it's. Um... <laughs> It's on an uh, intensity level that you just don't get in a lot of places. Cause everybody really means what they what they're doing there, and so it's a pleasure to get to be able to get in on a stage with that kind of ferocity. It's badass, and it was all apologies and cool and hugs, and it started off and it was great. And there was really interesting to me how much muscle memory was involved in playing because. You know, I didn't listen to any of the records, so when we went up to rehearsals and Rich cranked into Jealous again, my whole body, like, you know, sort of shivered, and I instantly started playing the song. So <laughs> it was it was a lot, and my son was there with me, and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was personally, it was quite, it was, quite, it was really great, you know. We were, we were killing it. Well, one of the one of the great things about that run was your take on the material that was recorded after you left, uh, in, you know, in the live, in the live experience. But specifically, we you know we have a lot of people, you know, when we have on here, they talk about what you did on Soul Singing and Greasy Grass River and stuff like that. How does that come to play? Are you like, hey, I, I think I can work this part in, or or is it just something that happened spontaneously? Um, well, I didn't ever listen to those records. I mean, I I listened to it enough to maybe get the gist of the song a little bit, but I treated them all as if I'd, I'm hearing them for the first time because I kind of was. And what would I play on it? I And I had no preconceptions of what anybody else had done on it. 
Yeah, it's actually very cool. Actually, the stuff you added to uh, Soulsing and um, you know subsequent uh, guitar players in the band would uh, adopted your additions. So obviously, it worked very well for the song. Well, once I it, figured out what tuning I was using, and and there was <laughs> there was a couple of times when I was just in the wrong tuning and couldn't figure out <laughs> what. Uh, you know, so yeah, once once we figured it out, it was good. There was a, there was recently some uh, some recordings that uh, came out into the into the bootleg world from sessions done in 2005 and 2006 with some new material from the crows did you contribute at all to the, that material and was there a plan at any point to to do an album uh i don't remember it i wasn't in on the planning when we got told what was going on well we thought it might be uh, kind of fun out there for uh, some of the listeners if we kind of got some quick thoughts from you on some of your more iconic tracks from the black crows catalog beginning with of course Sometimes Salvation, uh, obviously known for your smoking solo on that one. Yeah, I think I said the other day that although it's, you know, I get it why it's a lot of people's favorite because it's it's just pure blast of emotion because I was at my wit's end, you know, late into the evening and just couldn't figure out an entrance for it or how to, to handle this song, that, you know, and... Um, just finally, just at the at the at the end, you know, just dimed everything and essentially had a little fit, <laughs> and it'll never be able to be played that way again. You know, people I hear other people play that solo closer to the record than I'll ever be able to play it. <laughs> you know, so did that present a challenge for you then live? Like you, you really had a hard time replicating that solo. Well, I have to emotionally get to a place that's pretty intense. And um, I don't know if it's in my head or if it's a really a physical thing, what happens. But, yeah, I mean, it's you can't phone it in for sure. Well, one my favorite song you ever did with the Crows was my morning song. And, you know, and particularly live, that thing just became a beast. And um, one of our listeners, Steve Gleason, he's a musician. He wanted me to ask you, whenever you would come out of the, the solo into kind of like the, the sunrise part, you always we're able to sustain this like really long note. And he has said that there's a particular version in, in 96. He said, it's the greatest like couple of seconds of music he's ever heard. So he wanted me to ask you, how, how do you, how do you go about getting that note and, and, and sustaining it like that? Uh, my initial answer would be volume. <laughs> I mean, you know, really it's, it's, um, that was always my thing. It was always just an amp kind of, breaking up a little bit and then I would always run a preamp whether it be a fuzz face or a treble booster and then use the guitar to adjust for tonal differences and maybe I'd hit something for the solo or something but was how, how much fun was that to play live oh a ton of fun um the two rhythms that are going on in that are to me is like damn there it is you know that that's uh unstoppable you know with the because that's what i think the best place for rich and i are getting the opposite rhythms that are just churning together you know what i mean well another track you guys kind of uh melded well together on it's a pretty iconic track for the band too and that was wiser time i always really enjoyed the the colorations you added to that song i mean the solo was great but there's little little things you drop in and uh you know, in between lyrical lines and things like that. I mean, were you kind of 
kind of come up with those things on the spot or did you uh is this something that developed over time with that song mm, i don't remember how much we've ever played it before we recorded it so i would say i would say whatever my initial instinct is that it doesn't once i find a theme that works it doesn't the theme doesn't vary i may not play it exactly the same but you know i found a part i'm looking for a part first um and i you know wasn't rich had with those tunings and those chords that Rich plays, harmonically, there's so much going on. It really allows me to just be very uh, out of the way a lot of times. And you know, I'm only using three strings on most of that song, you know. So it's, yeah, it's about the park, really. I probably, it was the, and my initial first thing I went to, and, and it worked. And then if I uh, if I remember correctly, I remember you mentioning that uh, Jack Puig would then make you do it 900 times after that. So, <laughs> well, he uh, he was kind of perfectionist, and he's he's I mean a genius in a lot of ways. But as a player, he would uh, certainly he was a, a cock blocker for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with the stethoscope and looking for the sweet spot on a speaker, and you're standing there like ready to go and 45 minutes later he's ready to record and and the vibe's gone brah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it always struck me that uh you know on a lot of this especially a lot of stuff you did you know later on the stuff you recorded at the compound studio and things i mean you can hear amps vibrating off of the snare and think very live in the room it seems to be like that's that's more of your preferred way of recording yeah it is i mean i'm a musician first and when I listen to records, I appreciate really well-produced things, but I really like to hear the musicians playing together. So I try to keep that in as much as the music as I can. Well, Mark, one more song I wanted to ask you about, and it's one that every time I hear it, uh, the hair stands up on my arm. Um, I just got to ask you about what you play on Girl from a Pawn Shop. Yeah, well, I think it's a beautiful melody, and... Um, a beautiful song so i think maybe emotionally it connects somewhere with me and i get to really get in there you know we were i was just we had very few tools that in our belt and we were using each one as hard as we could you know and and then with these little tools that we had we were then having to use them in front of the people that we were learning them from <laughs> you know what i mean and um it was serious real fast and so you know with wiser time it was just i didn't know too much about playing like that but i could hear what worked and and maybe the uniqueness of the way i do it is is part of the reason is that i don't know what i'm doing and i'm i'm searching around and if it sounds cool and i'm i'm looking for that odd note too i love the mistake like you said and i love the because that'll inform the next thing, and then now you now you're into something either really shitty or <laughs> or for a second, or you know can really spawn. Either way, it's going to spawn a reaction and a, and new information for everything. You know? so I like to let things happen like that. After you left the Crows in '06, you know you put out the Weary and Wired album, and which you know was essentially a burning tree reunion. Um, if you could talk to us about how that album came to be and, and getting back with uh, Donnie and Muddy. Yeah, I don't 
really remember what came first. If it was, uh, I think what happened was um, we decided to play together, and then we had that sort of reunion at the King King, and we're talking about record. Well, we recorded it. We were talking about putting a record and and um, touring, and so it made sense to me that well, since we're playing together look at guys i got these songs i got to make a record why don't you come be the band and so we we did that and then we were good that was going to be that that tour was where Donny the drummer is armed he had some issues uh physically so I, I couldn't really risk taking him to europe and have him not finish so uh we got a new drummer and then i called i just said elijah you want to go and play guitar and so that was the birth of the fuzz machine and we were essentially just touring weary wired you know? and at the end of the year you had a whole new identity the fuzz machine record was actually recorded at the tail end of 07 after you finished that tour but you ended up not releasing it until uh 2010 tell us a little bit about the history of that album why you didn't release it right away and 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 why you chose to go on to the do the neptune blues club first and release it later uh, because I really didn't plan on making a record. I just, it was the end of a long year of touring. Um, we jumped around, went to Europe twice and around to States and to Moscow. And, and the band was playing really well together. And I had written these new songs that we were working up, playing one, but, you know, at soundcheck. And then they started working their way into the set. And um, on the flight home, I just decided, look, you guys, give me, give me a couple more days. Let's go home, have a day off. Give me a couple days in the studio, like we're still on tour. I'll pay you, and let's just record these new songs so that I have them. Because I'm thinking, like, this band never may never play together again, because <laughs> we were tired of each other at the phone. <laughs> but we were working really well together, so I said, let's record this, and we just. Basically, went in and went through the songs the way we were recording them a lot, playing them a lot. And then this record offer came up. So I just was glad I had it recorded, put it in the can. That's not going anywhere. And I started on, on the new thing. After you finished the, 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 the tour for the Neptune Blues Club, the next record you put out was the Holy Ghost album, which... To me, seemed like a, almost uh, somewhat of a stylistic departure for you. It kind of had a more overall acoustic sound. It seemed to focus more on the sound of the overall song rather than than focusing on on guitar. Was that a conscious change for you, or is that something that just kind of happened organically? Uh, it was an organic shift. Um, you know, I go through periods where I'm more interested in being loud and obnoxious, and being, <laughs> I think what happened is I spent a lot of time at home. With an acoustic guitar, and I had had a garage with a sort of a studio set up at the time, and I was getting to really kind of get involved with home recording and making demos. And the song to me, the craft of songwriting, was at the time more important than guitar playing. I mean, more interesting, I guess I should say. Because again, I think I was probably around, you know, the same headspaces for It's About Time, where I've had more time with the acoustic guitar. I'm really more interested in the songwriting part of things. And everybody knows I can play the guitar. Let's, you know, with with the Holy Ghost record, that was that was the Phantom Limb band 
Elijah and I just went over to England and, and I, you know, Stu, let me use your band because it's perfect for these songs. <laughs> and it was so easy again, you know, I just, I'd strum through the chords. Here you go, guys. And then we, we try it once or twice and have it and move on to the next. And you had, uh, you had produced Phantom Limbs album in the pines too, right? And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they had done your song, Badge of Dissension, which is a fantastic song. They had done that actually first on their album. Isn't that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. What was it like producing their record? It was a lot of fun. It was it's a bit of a struggle because I didn't realize how English I don't know how to say this. <laughs> how English they were gonna be. Because what I heard her talk about was Ike and Tina and Aretha and I mean I heard interviews with her. And the little bit of talk I had with Stu and some of the songs and stuff, I, that's, in my mind, I was thinking the staple singers, not Pink Floyd. Right. And um, so, yeah, I, to get them to loosen up a little bit and explain to them what I meant took a minute. But then, like Stu said, in the middle of it, we took a break after several days of, of me just, like, wrenching them. And... They went along with it. They looked at me like I was crazy, but then we got a day off and Stu listened to all the roughs and then he goes, oh, again. And from then on, it was really cool and really fun. And, and, you know, I mean, to his credit, he had developed this band and this really amazing sound and this thing that was really working well. And I was kind of throwing a wrench in the cart a little bit, you know, until he got another perspective. And I, I think realized I was trying to Americanize what they were doing a little bit. If that makes well, sense. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, it certainly worked out too. I mean, that's a fantastic record and it sounds great. Following that and the Holy Ghost tour cycle, you kind of put back together the Neptune Blues Club in a, in a, a slightly altered version. And then you uh, got to putting together what would ultimately become the Vulture. You recorded that at Tiny Telephone. But that was like a, um, a Kickstarter funded thing if i'm not mistaken uh, what made you decide to to choose to go that route on for that record i went and did some sessions up at tiny telephone with john vanderslice uh with again with elijah and uh, a friend of ours craig he was making a record he asked if we'd play on it so the family went up we stayed up in san francisco for a couple of days and i really enjoyed recording with john in his studio so much and i had thinking about i want to make another record but I don't want to do another record at the compound. I had done so many, and especially with the drummer in the band being the owner of the studio and the engineer, I just wanted to get away from it. Let's go out of town, guys. So, and John had just done, he's the one that really encouraged me to do a Kickstarter. Um, he's kind of uh, contagious in his enthusiasm about things. And so I went for it, and... You know, I, it makes perfect sense to me because it's really, it's like farm to table. Like if, if that's the only way I can describe it, like it's a, I made it, you buy it. There's no bank involved to get in, you know, in between us. Well, Mark, after, you know, you got off the, the tour for the Vulture, obviously, you know, you reconnected with Rich Robinson and, and got in the Magpie there for its run. What was it like when when you got the invitation with him to come and perform in Woodstock, and you know the the two of you getting back on stage like that? It was it was great. You know, I mean, I hadn't 
seen him for several years, and they were already started the weekend plan when I got there because there was a, a weather in Chicago, so um, I had to stay the night in Chicago because the plane flight got changed. And I missed it, and then I got there like there was supposed to be a day's earlier to sort of hang out a little bit and go over some stuff so we hadn't even seen each other i walked into the studio and they already started the first set and so i watched for a little bit and then we had a minute to sort of say hi and then we were playing together so you know once again just strap on and hope you make it to the end dude (laughs) (laughs) well i mean certainly one of the highlights of the unfortunately small catalog of the magpie salute was your track uh that's on high water Two, lost boy can you give us a little uh insight into the writing and recording of that song and, and how allison krauss came to be involved in it uh, i mean it really is a uh, one of your most beautiful songs i've ever heard uh, thank you well uh we were you know we held up john and i stayed in the house out there in nashville rich was living and john and so we'd meet every day and just throw out some ideas that we had Rich had oodles more than any of us did. Uh, (laughs) And so that was just a song that came up and there was, there was a weight to it right away. And, you know, we just started talking about, it'd be nice to have another singer, maybe a female and, and uh, being in Franklin, the neighbors there are pretty talented. So (laughs) that's, that's how that happened. Well, I've become friends through doing this with uh, Matt Slocum and um, I've talked to him from time to time. And one of the things he talks about that first Magpie tour was just how tight the band was musically. And it was just this, you know, great musical collective. And, you know, you guys were playing songs that, you know, the Crows hadn't played in forever. They were doing, you know, they were doing these really good covers, you know, playing a lot of your solo material. How much fun was that? Because he, he just really talks about how, what a special experience that was, for, at least for him. Well, I mean, again, the music is always, uh, when we're together, the music is together. And and it's so good that you'll put up with some bullshit to be there. <laughs> and, and that's just that. I mean, play, you know, getting to play with Matt. I mean, it's it's just about, you know, it's like back on the old team again. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, remember when we do this? Bam. You know, and you don't really get to do it like that anywhere else. I love to do all kinds of different music and play with all kinds of different people. And I only play the way I play with Rich when I play with Rich. Because um, I think a big part of my playing is is complementary to what's the main thing is, I guess. I really enjoy decorating things rather than being the main instrument that has to drive things, you know? So Rich's playing allows me to play in a way that, that no one else gets me to do. Well, Mark, we have had a lot of people on here from Mark Olson of the Jayhawks to, you know, obviously Jimmy Ashurst, Slocum, uh, Charlie Starr, Steve Gorman, uh, all those guys have been on and they have all, you know, are just so have so much respect for your musicality and playing. And Charlie Starr even told us when he's like, you know, Mark Ford doesn't play a lot of notes on stage, but when he does, you know, he makes them matter. Um, obviously, you've done a lot of sit-ins in your career. Um, how much fun is that when another band asks you to come on and, and, and do something like that, especially guys in like Blackberry Smoke, who obviously were big fans of yours when you were in the Crows and your solo stuff? 
it's I mean, you know, it's nothing but fun. That's why we do it. You know, I mean, if you know, the only bad part about it is that you usually wish it was more than the time you had. <laughs> because it's such a there's so much outside input that the band sometimes it's not necessarily the band connecting so much as you would if nobody was watching. But, you know, it leads to other things. It's good. And uh, I'll never forget the time I got to jam with the Allman Brothers. You know what I mean? It's like, I thought for sure I was just going to spontaneous combust right there in front of 20,000 people and be gone forever. <laughs> <laughs> but I made it. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of talent on that stage for sure. Um, I did want to ask you one gear question. We had somebody want us to ask you. You've started playing Asher guitars. Uh, what led you to, to playing with them? I met I met Bill while I was playing with uh, Ben Harper. Bill was making uh, lap steels for Ben. And um, he's just, he was kind of one of the luthier guys out here on the West Coast that, that a lot of heavy players have taken their guitars to. So when the... Um, Crow's thing came up, he said, you know, if you could make a guitar, what would you do? What would you have made? And I said, well, if I could somehow squeeze this guitar and this guitar together, that would be pretty cool. And so he showed up with this prototype and and we went from there. And I just, you know, his instruments are really great. And I've played enough Tellys and Strats and Les Pauls that I was just, what else is there to do, you know? Uh, <laughs> Now, when I play those guitars, they're they're brand new, um, so it's it's just it's a new tool, and they're really good ones. Now, when you when you switch guitars like that, like when you go from playing a, a say a Les Paul to your own, you know, you, to the Asher that's just kind of custom designed for you, it, does it does it affect your sound at all, or you kind of your sound is comes from your fingers and not the instrument more so? I mean, there's a reason why you use different guitars because each of them, you know, hopefully. If, if you think of them like a paintbrush, you know, each one's got a different thickness and a different mm. firmness and, and they, they draw a different line. So the answer to that is, yes, every guitar will make you play a little bit different. But, you know, most people will sound like them on whatever they pick up. Yeah, I heard a story about Eddie Van Halen picking up uh, Ted Nugent's Gibson guitar and was going to play it, and somebody was like, oh, he's going to sound like Ted Nugent. And they're like, no, he sounded like Eddie Van Halen on it. Yeah. Uh, dude, I... <laughs> I sat down with Eddie Van Halen, and he picked up this garbage acoustic with the strings like an inch off the neck, and he just started tapping on the thing and bending and playing just like, and I just went, all right, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you later, dude. You're a freak. (laughs) Well, Mark, as we get kind of close to the end, I did want to ask you about this because we've heard rumblings of it and I've heard you allude to it uh, a time or two. Any plans for you and Sven and John to to go in and and record some material? I sure hope so. I mean, plans, yes. Like, definitive ones, no, it's loose. You know, we had such a good time making music together and we thought, why not continue We've sort of kept in touch through emails, and hopefully one day we can all be in a room together and make music. But I think we all have aspirations to play with a lot of different people, and maybe this whole baloney will shake things up and open new opportunities. You know, I'd love to play with a lot of different people. I'm looking forward to new avenues and new possibilities, however that looks. Well, Mark, I mean, it has been a tremendous pleasure having you on as our guest today. We typically 
ask our guests to choose the playout song for the episode that they're on. So we thought you might want to uh, give us a highlight from the Live in Germany album that we can uh, send everything off with here. Oh, gosh. How about uh, I Don't Care? Honestly, you guys. All right. <laughs> All right. I threw well, out Dead Girl and Man for you guys for free, and you guys pick that one. You guys pick the next one. Like I said, my perspective is strange. You know, my favorite thing to listen to wouldn't be yours, maybe. <laughs> sure, show. You do it. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. Well, I think uh, in that case, I, I know from listening to it, there's uh, definitely a. Uh, smoking version on there of ghetto is everywhere so i think we'll uh we'll sign things off with that thank you so much for being our guest mark we really appreciate it and stay tall everybody
Thank you so much. Hang on. It's a State of America bonus track. We're going to send this one out to our pal, Manny Montana, because he is the steadiest rolling man around. Thank you for getting us out here, Manny, getting us around.